Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Have you on the show, Brian. How are you doing today? I'm well. I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Let me just start with a quick introduction for our listeners. Brian Bagdasarian is the founder of Simply Homes, an AI-driven real estate investment company that's transforming the way homes are bought and sold off-market. Simply Homes has raised to date a pre-seed round of 2.1 million. Before we dive deeper into the strategies you acquired your customer base, and what Simply Home value proposition is. I did a quick Google research and your name appeared with a movie star tag next to it. Is that true? Yeah, uh, I I don't think star. I think random person in the background of a couple things. Turns out one of the hardest things to scrub from the internet is an IMDb profile. Um, Comes up at the top. (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know. It is nothing that is anything to do with me at all. It was just I happened to get credit in a couple couple of movies back in the day. So amazing! It's good to start there. To go back to our discussion, tell us a little bit about Simply Homes. What is your sure. value proposition? Sure. So, in a nutshell, Simply exists for the roughly half a million homes a year that need to be sold but aren't perfect. And if you think about the overall real estate world, there's about $1.3 trillion in transaction volume annually. And 89% of that, 88% of that is going to go probably the, what we call the retail route, the market, the market ready route. The house looks good. It's been maintained, so on and so forth. But for the other $150 billion or so in, in volume that they're not market ready, those homes are where you see like the We Buy Ugly Houses guys come into play. And the issue is the we buy we houses kinds of guys. I'm not saying that's the company. I'm saying that's the concept. Some of them are great and work with a lot of ethical maturity, but a lot don't. And when you have to sell versus want to sell, it's a lot easier to fall prey to somebody that's going to take advantage of an uncomfortable situation. And so simply exists to try to course correct that. How did you early identify that this is a pain point and how did you verify that there's a market for it? Yeah. So it actually came from personal experience. Uh, My wife and I had a loved one right after we got married where we needed to make a move with them um, as they started to get older. They had received sort of an unsolicited offer on their house and they were going to take it. It felt great. They bought the house in 1981 and, you know, 38 years later, why wouldn't they take this number that seemed great? But it was really low compared to what the condition of the house was. And we kind of walked through the process. We ended up selling the house to the grandson of the original builder who was going to take on the, the reasonable amount of work. He needed new carpets and new bathrooms, but it wasn't anything major. It wasn't structural. And it worked out fine. But what stuck with me was what if they hadn't had someone like me, where I started my career as an underwriter on the lending side, I moved into finance, and then sort of the computer and medical model driven of that, driven side of that. When I came back to the States about 10 years ago, I really started transitioning that more into the AI side of things, especially specifically around human process automation. So I started, so what I was asking myself was, is there a way that we can streamline this experience 
but increase the level of accuracy as well as the efficiency, where we're giving the not the highest price, but the best and most fair price, and really solving for that seller rather than just trying to take advantage of them, which is what the rest of the industry really does. You mentioned that uh, your company has some artificial intelligence embedded in it. How does that play when it comes to getting the right price? Yeah, so there's a saying that I have is that we have to be analytical and to have the space to be empathetic. So what I did is I went there and I said, okay, if I were to manually underwrite a home, how long does that take and what information do I need? And the reality is it is virtually impossible for an individual to have access through any traditional means to the amount of information they actually need to properly underwrite a property. If you can get access to it, you're looking at anywhere from five days to about two weeks of manual work on a computer, but actually, you know, having to be local to the house and go through it. Anybody that isn't spending that time is probably just pulling a number out of the air and they're going to end up dramatically changing it down the line. So I said, okay, I understand that I've mapped out what the human process is. How can I automate it? Today, what our offer engine, which is our automated ML uh, underwriting platform does is that when somebody comes to one of our landing pages or to our website, there's a, what we call the widget. It allows them to search for their address. In every other company out there, that is just a lead form. For us, what's actually happening is the second they hit enter on that, we are actually underwriting what we call an initial or first pass underwrite that house. We're analyzing between 350 and 500 different data points, everything from on on the house itself, location, flood zone risk, size, square footage, ratios of bedrooms to bathrooms. We're looking at crime statistics, smog, you know, sort of environmental stuff. We're looking at average commute times to identify strategy. We know based on our data analysis that if the commute time in an area is greater than 28 minutes, it's not going to be a great rental, but someone will buy it. So it, it changes the strategy for it. We're looking at rental opportunities. We're looking at all these different data points that come into play. Some of them are primary. Some of them are extrapolated. Some of them are secret sauce. We use five different AVM models on top of that. And then we also are able to understand based on age and, and what questions the system returns to the person, we're able to then really narrow that down. We're actually rolling out on Friday our instant offer system where today we do all that underwriting and ask them questions, and then they have to talk to us. As of right now, Friday afternoon, when we roll this out, they'll be able to get an actual adjusted offer from our system in about 30 seconds. And it doesn't mean that that number is the final number, because we haven't necessarily seen inside the house. But what we do know is that we are very accurate on that, more than an open door and offer pad. Offer pad, for instance, will tend to drop drop an offer by fifty dollars to $60,000. On average, we can do a lot less. The second part of what we do, which I think is really cool, is we also have figured out how to properly underwrite the renovation costs. I have a team of renovation analysts here. We created some software that they use to support them that feeds in data on a weekly basis for every market that we're in for the cost of materials and the cost of labor for virtually anything that has to be done to renovate a house. So we generate repair estimates after we have them under contract we do what's called a virtual walkthrough. It's about a 15 to 20 minute walkthrough of the house with one of our with one of our team members. And then within an hour or two, we have a repair estimate generated down to the line item. We don't say bathroom $12,000 renovation. We say remove toilet paper holder, $2.34. 
Install new toilet paper holder. Labor plus materials, $54.68. That's in Pittsburgh is what those costs are. And so we know based on some of our partners that are on, on the REIT side of things, the real estate investment trust side of things, our renovation estimates are uh, usually within 5 to 7% of what actual cost is. And that combination is our secret sauce. So basically, if I am a homeowner and I want to sell my house, I come to your website, I put the location, you give me an instant offer. Do you later provide liquidity, meaning are you connecting the seller and the buyer, or are you actually giving an offer and then buying and then renovating and then putting it on the market? It depends on which way the strategy determines. So we work with a number of um, very large real estate investors. REITs, some of the largest rental portfolio operators in partnership. When we were their partner on deals, we're joint venture on deals. We might take it down initially and then do some initial work and then sell it on. And we're starting now. We're rolling out our first portfolio fund where we are actually doing long-term hold, not just a short-term sort of opportunistic fix and flip, uh, which for the way the market is right now, it's really opportunistic. It's, it's really well poised. Amazing. So let's dive deeper into your early acquisition strategy. How do you find homeowners that want to sell and they land on your website? Yeah. So the last company that I was part of the founding team of was called Motion AI and probably the single most genius, um, genius young man I've ever met in my life, the genius man in general. Dave Nelson was the founder of that company. I was lucky enough to be part of, part of the initial, you know, you know, four of us that were on that team. We exited the HubSpot. And when I was at HubSpot, for anyone that's familiar with HubSpot and the concept of inbound marketing, they're familiar with the concept of personas and understanding how to build out that semi-fictional representation based on data and supposition that you use to then target. And a lot of the work I did at HubSpot was creating this thing called conversational growth strategy, which is how do you take what has been historically been an inbound marketing macro exercise of these are the people I want to talk to, and how do you do that on a one-to-one basis? And what I did is I translated that same knowledge base or knowledge skill set over to this. So we have four target personas on the sell side that we work with. They're all dealing with relatively different things, different motivations, but all of our marketing, all of our messaging is really targeted to them because of those different motivations. We have one we call Kevin and Carrie. They're overextended is a nice way to put it. They've um, access to easy credit over the last 10 to 15 years has gotten them to a point where they may not financially be comfortable anymore and they need to make a move and they are aware of it. We have another persona that we call Jane and Jane is um, an older person, you know, 65 plus, more than likely there's a loved one involved. That could be an adult child, it could be a spouse, a partner, even a, even a trusted neighbor. The house is more outdated usually than damaged. It's a downsizing situation and post COVID they're really not wanting to do the whole song and dance. It's not about necessarily maximizing the, the exit. It's about making that easy as they move into the next thing for their third act. And there's some other ones in there as well. But that has really driven our messaging. So everything that we do, right down to even our brand voice, and you know, if you go to, go to our website, you can see we, we have this really strong 3D aesthetic. That is all targeted at resonating with those personas, which means that we are 100% inbound. We have never made a cold call in our lives. We do use some outbound tactics. We do some direct mail, but even those are in response to someone coming to our site. And the beauty is because of the data that we have access to, we're able to understand those people sometimes better than themselves really fast, which means that we can help. We can figure out what their best solve is, which may not even be working with us. Also, 
pretty fast. And sometimes speed is of the effort. They're in pre-foreclosure. We're headed that way. They don't have six months to dilly-dally. So how does a Kevin and Kerry find you through the inbound machine? So combination of things, a lot of paid search next door. So paid search on Google and Bing. Bing is still actually a great place to spend money. It's a fraction of the cost of, uh, of Google search. We look at it as sort of there's your primary initial conversion, which is they've done something that we want them to do, and then retarget the living hell out of them. That's outbound emails to them. They know not aggressive, just like, hey, here's the situation. Here's some education. I'm a firm believer that if I educate you, then you're empowered to make a decision. But if I don't educate you and I ask you to make a decision, you're not going to trust that decision that you made. And so it's a lot of sort of these traditional paid outlets that we acquire for very, very low cost compared to the industry average. The industry average today to to generate a viable deal in this space is somewhere between $1,000 and $3,000. My cost is 1% of that, 1% to 3% of that, put it that way, which means that we are really effective at what we do. And those people, as long as we treat them well, we treat them with respect. And because of the analysis that we're doing, our, my team has the room to be empathetic to their situation because they're not having to think about the numbers. They're just having to think about the solve. It's resonated with, with the people they work with. That's why we have five-star reviews across the board. If you were to share a one tactic or one advice on when it comes to paid advertising, because you mentioned earlier that you have a fraction of a cost as compared to other industry uh, leaders. What sort of advice would you give if someone's listening from another industry? For example, I work in insurance. It's quite hard to become efficient in paid advertising, but other people might be in dating and e-commerce. Any advice you might share? Yeah, a couple things. I think you'd be surprised it's actually not as hard to do the insurance thing as a lot of people say. Some of my own portfolio companies are around that space. And it starts with don't go after the elephant tracks. Like, don't go after the simplest thing. Don't try to, t- you know, if, if you're doing, let's say, paid search, Google search, for instance, don't target car insurance. You're going to pay an arm and a leg. But if you can think of, and this is why the persona development is so important. Let's say that, that you have a persona, you know, and let's just say it's, it's a general insurance to say it's like car insurance, whatever. If you have a persona that we call Donnie the dad, Donnie the dad has a 14-year-old, a 17-year-old, and a 22-year-old children. Two two of them are on his insurance. One is about to be on the insurance. And one of the kids has had a minor accident, 16-year-old had a minor accident, first year they were there. He's a salaried guy. He tends to be very, very comfortable with the company that he is. He uses State Farm. He he would love to be with USAA, but he can't be because he doesn't have the the history. But really, to that level of depth, let's say he's college educated, he works in upper middle management, he's making $85,000 a year. His wife makes $65,000 a year. And they have these three kids. One of them is just out of college. One of them is going to be going to college. So that's the whole background. What are the things that he's going to actually be trying to figure out? He's probably going to go to something like, how does my kid having a car accident affect my car insurance? He's going to search for that. Or something like discounts for for more than three drivers. Those are the search terms they're going to be going after. Well, those are a lot cheaper to target because they're what's called long tail. And it's, yes, you can do a paid search thing on that. And that's how you can capture initially. But what you can also do is those are a lot easier to rank for. And our content strategy is a big part of this. We generate around 30 pieces of content monthly on our blog. And then we have what are called pillar pages on top of that. Pillar pages are single purpose pages. So maybe 
we build a pillar page, let's say we we're in the shirt in the insurance space and the car insurance space, how to navigate car insurance when your kids get their license. And I have this long pillar page that has all of these resources broken down on how to navigate this process. And all of that is linking to other smaller pieces of content that I have that are more specific on those elements of it. And then those things start ranking, which means that now I'm going to be gaining search engine rankings. And as I bump up the SERPs, I can do less of my paid advertising because I'm now getting the organic. And the beauty of that is you can start to capture things like rich snippets, which are those little things that drop down. So where a lot of people make a mistake is they just go after the simplest search term and they end up spending a ton of money rather than being really strategic and understanding what is the activity or activities online that their person is doing, that their target persona is doing and meeting them where they are rather than just hoping to capture everybody. Because I can guarantee you the same person searching for car insurance in that big group that's going to be super expensive, you're still going after the same 10% of people down over here. You're just paying to be shown 90. Well, just go and show it to 10 different groups of 10. And you're going to be a lot more targeted, which means you're going to have a lot, a lot greater conversion and a lot more granularity in what you're going after. Thank you for sharing this actionable insight. What sort of acquisition strategies have you early on deployed that did not work? Yeah. When I say we never called, called we called, called for two days. And I thought my team was going to mutiny me. I don't think in our space, outbound cold calling works. Facebook didn't work for us as primary because we're in what's called a restricted category. It's housing. There's a lot of limitations on targeting. So we spent a bit of money trying to target cold traffic on Facebook and it just didn't work. We do have some success there on retargeting, but we spend very little on Facebook and Instagram. I just don't think they're effective anymore for the vast majority of things other than e-com. I think e-com and local services do have a place in those spaces. Other side is the local services should just be on next door. It's way cheaper. What learnings did you bring with you from HubSpot and what learnings you did not bring with you? So I'll start with the second part of that. What I didn't bring from there was some of the B2B side of stuff. Because HubSpot is primarily B2B. I had to go down a level. And I had to put myself not in the, I like, how would I teach somebody how to do this? How would I create the way to teach somebody how to use my product? Because that's not what I'm doing. I had to be the student of my own teachings and execute on those. That was a pretty big paradigm shift initially. I think the thing that I took was really understanding. It was this concept that I, that I created at HubSpot called SCOPE, which is an acronym. It's standardized, contextualized, optimized, personalized, and empathized. This is like, if there's one piece of value that anybody gets out of hearing you and I talk, it's this. Uh, it came out of conversational growth strategy, which, which was a concept that I created at HubSpot about how to connect one-to-one at scale. But essentially, you have to standardize your information or your offering. It's not that it's the same every time, but it's the same general information. These are the rules that we operate by. And you have to contextualize. How is this person receiving this? What is the surrounding context? Is this that they are seeing this for the first time? Is it that they are seeing this for the fifth time? Is it that they are a new customer? Are they a returning customer? What are they? That's the contextualization. Optimizing for the channel that you're on. Don't send three paragraphs via a text message. Keep it conversational. For us, when we do use text messaging, we have engagement triggers that are partially automated. And we have this ridiculous response rate to them. We're optimizing for that channel. Same thing. Our long-form content will then get split into tweets. We'll then get split into other things. 
personalizing it. What do you know about this person already? It's a fine line between creepy and cool because I know what these people like. I know what motivates them. I have that information. It's all available. All of our data is available. And then empathize. Empathize for impact. And that means that you've got to be able to connect with them in their situation. Just because you're not stressed out doesn't mean they're not. For example, it doesn't matter what you want to get done with that person. If you can't meet them emotionally where they are, you're never going to move forward. So sometimes you have to defuse a situation or you have to assuage a certain amount of fear or concern, which can take a little bit of time that not everybody has patience for it before you can get somebody to move forward just because they're so afraid of it not going the way that they need it to go, not just want it to go. But scope. Amazing framework. Brian, what's next for Simply? Yeah. So we're going to be raising our next round, hopefully here in a, in a very interesting market. But we have some great investors that are, you know, that are on board that I think are going to be, uh, be supporting us on that. We didn't raise a huge amount of money because we didn't need it. And now we're at that point where we're starting to do the hockey stick. We're rolling out the fund, which we're hoping to wrap up here pretty quickly. And what's nice with that is that we've structured this in a way that the VC-backed technology company stays a VC-backed technology company. We're just able to increase our opportunity by having both, you know, sort of an off-co, prop-co kind of model as we move forward. Brian, thank you very much for being part of our show. Where can people reach you? You can hit me on Twitter. It's at uh, RealBrianBags. Or, uh, you know, shoot me an email. It's Brian at SimplyHomes.com. Thank you, Brian, and have a great day. Awesome. Thanks, Sonny. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers.